This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. You're here with James Dickerson in Motive's office in London. Today I'm joined with Damien Sutcliffe. It's good to be here, James. Thank you for inviting me along. Rather than me giving you an introduction, why don't I give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and maybe spend a little bit of time on your early professional career. I think you and I shared the same school at the beginning of our careers and how you moved on into the large financial services firm that is Goldman. Yeah, I'll try and keep it brief. But, you know, I guess back at college, I didn't realize that banks were good places, good careers for, for technologists. So I didn't even look in that space. So it started out at Anderson Consulting back in the day. Great company to work for, particularly out of college, some really good training, good mindset, and also a bit of fun, you know, sort of work hard, play hard type environment. So that was great. You know, I was lucky enough to be assigned into the financial markets sector and just found that I loved the financial markets. So I was very pleased with that. Worked at a, you know, on a number of projects at different European banks, and frankly was quite pleased to be at Anderson Consulting because I don't think back in the day those banks had really got the right mindset about the potential competitive advantage that technology could bring. So I was doing interesting projects, move on to the next one. And then I moved on to a project at Goldman's, and I have to say that place was significantly different. You know, everybody knows how smart the people at Goldman's were. And that was, I guess, both a little intimidating, but also uh, hugely rewarding to, you know, work in that environment. So 15 months into that, I sort of seamlessly transitioned over starting my career at Goldman's. You could probably say either I'm uh, I'm the only person that's joined Goldman's with zero interviews, or I hold the record for the longest interview at 15 months. Um, <laughs> but either way, uh, you know, they, they liked me. I was really excited to join them. I started off in Europe, you know, as a developer and then running global projects and then running a team. Was asked to move out to Tokyo. So I spent three years out there running essentially the back office systems for the region, which was, you know, my first real experience of managing in a sort of proper way. And being out in, in Asia is a dangerous place to be a manager because culturally people are very polite and they will never contradict you if they're more junior than you. And so you can be a manager out there thinking you're God's gift to being a manager because <laughs> you're getting all this sort of uh, all these signs that everything's going well, whereas the reality is very different. So fortunately, I was, uh, I'd say, able to uh, learn that lesson before it went too far wrong and really enjoyed fantastic place to live and work. My now wife moved out to Japan with me. We had our first child in Japan as well. So it was a, it was a really good time to spend out there. And then I was asked to move to New York. So I sort of begrudgingly went for two years as we just had our first child, wanted to really be back in the UK. Mm-hmm. And then 13 years later, I was still in the US. I was an American citizen. I had, you know, largely my kids felt like they were American. I'd say the, the US experience was terrific. You know, being in the head office was a very different experience, but also great to be sort of right at the center of decision making. So largely jobs in the US were running the global organizations in tech, you know, covering finance and risk, or for the second half of that time, really covering the operations space, going through a, a big program to digitize and, and automate the operational functions at Goldman's. 
uh, you know, worked for some really great people, people who were not just managers, but great mentors and now still very good friends. So, you know, it was, uh, it was really good. But I guess six years ago now I had the opportunity to finally get my return ticket to Europe, which, you know, fitted well from a sort of family perspective, parents were getting older, etc. So I was asked to be the European CIO, which was always a job that I'd found very, you know, I thought I'd find very interesting because of the sort of breadth that it covered. But I was still able to keep my global job. So I was still able to sort of feel like I, I could really own and drive uh, some part of, of the tech. So yeah, I guess uh, that, that 25 years later. Lincoln, you would have missed it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, time really does fly. But it, you know, at Goldman's was, if I reflect, you know, I really grew up there as, you know, both it was terrific from a career perspective, but also, you know, I learned a lot as a, as a person and it's a really shaped who I am now. So I always feel incredibly fortunate that somehow sort of serendipitously I, I ended up on that path. And uh, yeah, and, all was good. And, and, and here we are today. <laughs> I think just hanging on your career at Goldman just a little bit. And of course, you, you mentioned at the beginning how firms like Goldman didn't necessarily see the advantage they would have from technology perhaps mm. when you started your career. Can you talk a little bit around how that shift in mentality went about to, to what the organization yeah. is today and you know the absolute focus and rigor around technology? Yeah, and I should have clarified that. What I found very different about Goldman's back when I was working there at the outset was they did view technology very differently than I'd previously seen at other institutions. And so you know, there was a real appreciation of the value that technology could bring. And, you know, there was literally a blueprint of how they wanted the sort of functional architecture to look as probably showing my age here, but going back from sort of mainframe, monolithic, centralized processing into a distributed space, they'd spent a great deal of time thinking about how that transition should look and, and essentially what the ultimate end picture should look like. And largely, you know, that end picture was, you know, I'd say 20 years ahead of its time and allowed, I think, Goldman's to get a, a significant advantage by sort of moving down that path, being very rigorous about sort of keeping functional modularity, but also single instances of each of those functional modules. So there was, you know, really global systems performing specialist functions all connected and data flowing between them, which I think is a big differentiator in terms of capabilities that Goldman's then had, both in terms of sort of revenue side as, as well as on the cost side. And culturally, you know, over your time there, did you see the business evolve quite significantly? Because you, you hear lots of leadership talking about how Technology is almost now the front of house yeah. and perhaps maybe wasn't initially. Yeah, there was a big shift over time. I'd say, you know, right back at the outset, it was very much a support function. It was supporting the business in relatively basic operations, automation, etc. But over time, the sort of depth and breadth of technology has gone up exponentially. And, you know, you see the, the transition now that I'd say really technology is, is driving a lot of the businesses. And, you know, if you think about the financial markets as a whole, there's a relatively fixed revenue pool across the financial markets. That revenue pool is shrinking because margins are constantly being pressured. And so technology enabling you to both get a bigger slice of a, a shrinking pie is important, but it's particularly important now in terms of your sort of efficiency of operations, because the profitability of banks is 
really significantly driven by the cost base that's needed to execute the business safely. And I'd say that's another big shift that's happened. Obviously, you know, the financial crisis was sort of uh, an event-driven driver there. But if you look at the bar that banks are being held to, initially the focus was on capital soundness. I think there's an increasing focus on liquidity these days. But if you look now, the bigger focus is on operational resiliency because, you know, things can go wrong from any different number of reasons. And because of the sort of size, scale and speed that the business is executed at, technology resiliency is an increasingly large part of the overall bank's operational resiliency. Have you heard of Brain Food? It's our weekly newsletter and it comes out every Sunday morning. It's packed with the best content that we come across on financial services and technology. It contains quotes, articles, events, and it showcases rising fintechs and people in our industry that inspire us. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. And thinking about that, both in the context of Goldman, but, but also the broader industry, how did you start to see, I suppose, what we call fintechs today. So perhaps kind of the earlier stage, more emerging technology firms looking to address some of the challenges that you've mentioned. How did you think about those at Goldman? And what was that kind of build by decision-making process like? Look, Goldman's renowned for more of a build house. I think, again, seeing technology as a competitive advantage allows or leads the bank to focus on the building because you can build and differentiate through what you build. So that was always a heavy emphasis. And if you think about fintechs, they're often solving quite specific problems and solving them in potentially innovative ways and and very interesting ways. And I think that fitted very well with Goldman's because, as I say, Goldman's had this very sort of well-defined modular functional architecture. And so if you could see spaces where maybe there was something really interesting being done in the outside world, you could bring it in and sort of slot it in into a place. We weren't beholden to a big software vendor that sort of owned a front-to-back technology stack that had very impenetrable walls around it. And I think also just from a mindset perspective, you know, Goldman's likes working with people that are sort of open to collaboration. So rather than taking a finished product off the shelf, it would rather look for sort of potential and some evidence of likely success and invest a lot of time and intellectual thought process into helping shape that product into something better. And there was often in those collaborations, potentially equity stakes would be made as well, because if Goldman really thought it was worth using and buying and tie yourself to it, then by extrapolation, that was probably going to be potentially a successful product. And so why not put some money into it as well as all the sort of thought and advice and expertise? Yeah. And we saw for some time, you guys were doing that around corporate venture capital. And now I think, you know, most banks that we probably speak to or have a relationship at least have some sort of corporate venture yeah. capital function that's kind of in, inherent in the model today. And I think people are more attuned to that. More broadly in the market, I mean, the term fintech is relatively new, mm. but financial services technology is very old. Yeah, yeah. What's different about this wave of disruption? What's fundamentally changing it beyond kind of, I suppose, the foundational blocks of cloud and APIs? What do you yeah. see as really driving this next wave well, I think, of change? First of all, the barriers to entry for a startup have been massively reduced over time. You know, open source code, cloud, compute, you know, means that starting up 
a venture requires a good idea and hopefully some high quality software engineering, but a tiny fraction of the capital investment that was previously required. So I think what that means is more people are able to take their ideas and bring them to fruition. So if you look at the sort of pool of ideas and products and services that are now out there, it's far richer, which I think therefore means that even if relatively small percentage end up being successful, chances are the quality of those will be much higher. And so I think what you've got is a lot of really good ideas now being able to be brought to production or enterprise level with far less money in, in shorter timeframes. And I think that the banks themselves are under very significant cost pressures. And so they're much more open to looking at interesting solutions. You know, the cost point for some of the, the startup products is often significantly less than the, uh, I'll not use any French words uh, to describe <laughs> the large monopoly software players. But, you know, that that's also cause interesting disruption to those monopoly software vendors where they see some of their market share being eaten away and also directionally they've needed to change and break down their their offerings to be more appealing to banks. And the one thing that's been constant, there's no shortage of problems that need solving or opportunities that are there for smart people to create solutions for. We'll move on to your role in kind of, I suppose, more the entrepreneurial side of mm. FinTech in a moment around the FinTech Innovation Lab. But if you were, you know, for our listeners that are perhaps thinking about building a FinTech or in the process of building a financial services technology that's aimed at selling to an organization like you used to be, what would be kind of your top two tips? Obviously, uh, traditionally, I think banks can be known for long sales cycles. Mm. So what would be your advice to yeah, anybody, yeah. entrepreneurs? Largely, the first response is, are you mad? <laughs> There's got to be better industry sectors to go after. Um, look, I, I think part of it is getting them their expectations set appropriately, let's say, in terms of that, that sales cycle. But probably the two bits of advice would be, one is be focused. If you've got a good idea, stay focused to that idea. Try and validate a good opportunity for that idea early. So you're not discovering that after you've spent a lot of time building it. I think there's a temptation to, in the early stages, either be spread too thin in terms of sales or be spread too thin in terms of trying to take the product in lots of different directions. It's okay to have a roadmap of where you want to get to. That's, I'd say, very important, but make sure there's really concrete sort of milestones and deliverables on the way, whether it's limiting to certain market sectors or limiting to certain functionality within the product so that you can make some sales, get revenue in. So stay focused would be tip number one. And tip number two is be open to advice. There are a lot of very smart people out there and there are a lot of very helpful people out there, particularly when it comes to small companies. And people have a lot of experience of the financial markets and they can both help shape those products to the most important opportunities, as well as potentially help them sort of navigate a little bit through the sort of corporate interactions. Both uh, very good advice. Uh, focus and uh, be open to discussion. Leads us nicely onto, I suppose, where we first met each other, which was through the FinTech Innovation Lab program, where you act as a business mentor for early stage financial services technology companies looking to engage with the industry. When you and I were first looking at the program, it was a handful of startups and a handful of financial institutions, and now yeah. scale quite significantly to, yeah. I think, 20 plus companies in the United Kingdom per annum to 
you know, 40 financial institutions. Can you tell us a little bit about your role there and how you engage with some of these early stage companies? Sure. And as you say, I've been involved in the program for many years. The first few years of that was as the sponsor for the program with Goldman's. So I was aware of the program. I was aware of, I think, frankly, what a good job Accenture do running that program. I mean, they run the startups hard for three months, but the value to the startups of the whole program is is huge, particularly if you sort of compare startup at the beginning of the program to startup at the end of the Absolutely, program. Yeah. They won't almost recognize themselves. So I was aware of just what a good program it was. So after I retired two and a half years ago, I thought it would be an interesting thing to stay involved with. And Accenture were very happy for me to be a business mentor. And what that means is, I guess, throughout the program, you know, I just run some office hours where the startups sign up to. And really, I, I leave it pretty open to them. And they've got to have a particular topic or a problem that they would like help with. Ideally, they've structured some thoughts around that. And then we have a, a dialogue, a debate, and, you know, potentially meet multiple times throughout the program to evolve that. You know, it can be, as I mentioned, helping them with product strategy and direction, trying to find the best fit for the product or whether it needs to evolve in, in different ways. And sometimes it can be sort of situational. You know, maybe they've done some pitches at banks through the program, dissecting the feedback, how best to follow up and sort of maximize that opportunity. Sometimes it can be sort of pricing, economics-based discussions. You know, how should they pitch the pricing you don't want it to be too high to scare people off but you don't want to undersell yeah. what it what could be sometimes too small so. is also uh, yeah also exactly a exactly so it's a variety of, of topics but very open-ended and and really just aimed at helping the startups where they think they need most help yeah no i completely agree it's a great program You've been a little bit more actively involved with some company, earlier stage companies than the other. I think more recently you've taken a role, a role with a company called iPushPool. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that company and what they're up to? Sure. Yeah, it was a company I came across after I retired. We met at a fintech event. They were potentially looking for an advisor and I was interested in, in trying out a portfolio of things. So I followed up with them and really liked the team there. So that was sort of Condition number one, from my perspective, I've got to really like the people I'm going to spend time with in my retirement. Second was I really like their idea. The platform is basically a tool for enabling real-time sharing of data, bi-directionally or multi-directionally. It can also orchestrate processes that operate on that data. So if you think about what's in the marketplace, basically Excel is the tool that people use to perform these types of lightweight data sharing and uh, sort of workflow processes. And it's a terrible, I mean, it's a great platform for some things, but it's not a great platform for those things. And as I say, the, the platform, real time, scalable, with good entitlements, audit trail, etc. It's sort of high quality platform that does, again, a relatively simple thing, but it does it incredibly well. And you can get up and running very quickly with the platform. And I think it really addresses a key need and an opportunity within banks. So yeah, love the people, great team, good product. And uh, I think there's a good opportunity. So happy to be involved with them and help them in any way I can. I'm sure they are well rewarded for the advice that you're giving them. 
So you mentioned you're retired now, and yeah. other than enjoying the lovely British weather, <laughs> what have you been up to? I think obviously retirement isn't what it is for some people. For you, I think you like yeah. to keep busy. So yeah, I, I guess I did enjoy uh, six months of proper retirement. It was a summer, so it was nice and <laughs> nice and warm. Pop down to New Zealand to see the British Lions play, cycle holidays, etc. Mm. So life was pretty good in retirement, but. I guess after a while, your brain does start to itch for something to challenge it. And I'm probably a little young to completely go out to pasture. And as winter was approaching, it becomes a lot less appealing with all those long, long, short days and dark nights. So I was chatting with a friend, a professor up in Cambridge, who was bemoaning the fact that uh, he couldn't find any people to do his machine learning work in the, the lab because everybody that knows machine learning goes off into industry to earn 10 times what they earn as a PhD student. So I got thinking, I thought, well, I've always found machine learning really interesting, would love to become more deeply skilled in that space. And sort of applying it in the medical research space was completely new. Certainly to me, it's not new as a concept, but to me, it's completely new. And so, you know, I thought about what I wanted to do. It was basically something that I would find interesting, again, like the people that I'd be working with and would allow me to learn a lot. So it really seemed to fit the bill. But, you know, a four-year PhD is a big commitment. So yeah. I did a fair bit of research to make sure, A, I did think I would actually find it interesting, which I, from early investigations, definitely came back with a yes. And then I also wanted to make sure that there was at least some chance I could be successful because I was taking up a funded position with a goal of actually helping people. So I wanted to make sure that, as I say, that there was a, at least a, a small chance I could be successful. So, yeah, started that probably 18 months ago. It's going well so far. It's as interesting as I thought it would be. I seem to be making progress, which which is good. But yeah, really, really enjoying it. So something completely different. Enjoying the transition to academia. Yes, oh. and enjoying the life where I don't have to worry about 2,000 people that work for me and having a calendar full of meetings and I can actually just get on and code every day, which is actually very therapeutic. I suppose traditionally people would do that. You've done it in reverse. Yeah. <laughs> Full circle, I would say. <laughs> so I think obviously we've covered your professional career and now what you're doing in terms of your role in academia. You mentioned off air before we got started that you kind of transitioned from running to cycling. What did you get up to on the bike? Yeah, so myself and a good friend did Land's End to John O'Groats charity bike ride. You know, a thousand miles, which is well beyond the distance that I've ever cycled before. A year before, my friend Gary got hit by a car and fractured his vertebrae in three places, which obviously put those plans on hold. But he was still keen to do it. Wow. And whilst still in pain, was keen to, to keep cycling. It was good in a way because we, in hindsight, realized we would have been woefully underprepared if we'd done it a year before, but it gave us more time to, to train. And more importantly, we were riding to raise money for Macmillan. And thanks to the generosity of lots of people, we were able to raise £40,000 or so for the charity. So great experience. You know, I think those three types of fun, right? It's probably type two fun where it was uh, more fun in hindsight than at the time on a bike in torrential rain with howling gales through Scotland. But the some spectacular parts of the country that we got to see and yeah really enjoyed it you wouldn't normally get to see them as well which is a, a nice exactly. excuse to do so yeah and, and also uh, a good cause so probably have this year more relaxed but maybe next year we'll do top to bottom of france as another charity venture you can see that drive and determination that made you so successful in your career <laughs> it's obviously bleeding through into academia and then also <laughs> your personal life now i know it's all self-inflicted I, I can't blame anyone else i bring it on myself on that note damien thank 
thank you for joining us here. I very much appreciate you taking the time to share a bit of insight and a little bit of a personal touch too. And uh, all the best for the rest of the PhD and we look forward to hearing more. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.